Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome to the first afternoon session. I'm Steve Hankey, professor at Johns Hopkins and senior fellow at the Cato Institute. And before I introduce uh, the speakers who are here, I'd like to uh, make a few remarks about uh, one of my dear friends and colleagues, Bill Niskanen, who is not here and uh, someone who was a uh, uh, not only chairman of the Cato Institute for many years and chairman emeritus, uh, but somebody who participated uh, actively in the annual monetary conference. And in particular, I was reminded one of the questions right before lunch was on the idea of targeting nominal uh, GDP. And Niskanen, like with so many other things, was ahead of the curve on this topic. And in particular, uh, if you go back and look at the Cato Journal uh, 2003, you'll find an article Bill wrote on the Fed's demand bubble. And then again, he hit the same topic in 2006 in the Cato Journal, an unconventional perspective on the Greenspan record. Uh, in which he gave Greenspan rather low marks simply because uh, the best measure for Bill for aggregate demand wasn't the uh, nominal GDP, but nominal final sales to domestic purchasers. So uh, we, we can revisit Niskanen, and I think you'll get something out of it if you're interested in something that's supposedly a new topic that's come up on the radar screen, and that's targeting shall we say, nominal aggregate demand. Uh, now, as for the speakers, I'm not going to go into, obviously, a, a, a long biographical sketch on uh, any of the speakers. They don't need it. Uh, and, and you can see in the materials that were handed out exactly what the particulars are if you're not already familiar with them. But we're going to change the order a little bit uh, at the suggestion, actually, of, of Larry White. Uh, we, we have a, a logical order, and that is uh, we're starting with Dick Timberlake. Uh, you're, you're, not, you're number one. As, as the, the, the dean of the deans and, and money and banking, you will begin, not because you're the dean of the deans, but because you are going to explain why we went off the gold standard. Uh, then Judy Shelton, uh, who's most noted for calling the big ruble uh, collapse, which people forget, that, that was a big event, and uh, Judy was ahead of, ahead of that one uh, by a country mile. Uh, Judy will speak to us a second about why we should go back on the gold standard. And then uh, Larry White, who also is a dean, the dean of Austrian monetary economics, or one, one of them, uh, will speak to us about why, uh, uh, not why we should go on, but how we should go on. So why we went off, why we should go back on, and how we should go back on is the, the logic of this session. So with that, Dick, you want to lead off? Okay. Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, 
I was waiting for the fourth paper, but it, there wasn't any, so I guess that's you sufficient. Want, you want me to give one? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to say thank you very much uh, for listening to me. Um, I, uh, um, I'd like to start by observing a couple of things that, uh, quickly that happened this morning. One is that, I, in my opinion, the dual mandate is the problem with the current Fed. I think we could get rid of a lot of problems that the Fed has generated by getting the Fed back to nothing more than stabilizing the value of the dollar by stabilizing a price index. Uh, I just wanted to get that off my chest. And, uh, but the Fed is a, is a different animal than it began in 1913. And I'll get to that anon. To begin with, we had a gold standard, gold-silver standard in the 19th century. And it and the central bank, and a central bank, any central bank, create money. That's their function. The gold-silver standard does it through markets with a given price for gold and or silver. The central bank does it by discretion unless it has a rule. And that rule, as I just said, should be the stabilization of the price index. Now, the gold-silver standard was um, a fact of life for everyone through from 1789 until 1862 when uh, during the Civil War the northern government uh, passed the Greenback Acts. The Greenbacks were United States notes, sometimes called legal tenders, and they differed from earlier treasury notes in that they were full legal tender for all debts public and private. Now that latter uh, provision was unnecessary. They would have circulated, and this is easy to prove, uh, just as well as they did without the private legal tender um, provision. Um, and uh, the war went on, of course, and, and ended, and we had an inflation. Uh, the inflation was about a 248% inflation over the what had uh, been the price level uh, price index value in 1860. So the, the, there, there were lots of debts um, coming due after 1865 the, when the war ended. And the, some of the people that owed debts tried to pay them off with greenbacks, which had depreciated by the amount of the depreciation in the price level, uh, which was somewhere around, uh, at the time the attempts were made, it was not 248 or 148, but uh, uh, on the, in the vicinity of 
And consequently, um, there were court cases that came before the Supreme Court, ultimately, that tested the legality of the full legal tender provision of the greenbacks. Um, the Supreme Court at that time, uh, in 18, from 1864 uh, to there on, uh, the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court was Salmon P. Chase, who had been Secretary of the Treasury under Lincoln, and then Lincoln appointed him Chief Justice in, in 1864 after he resigned from the Treasury. And, um, and, and Chase had, uh, had approved uh, the issue of the greenbacks during the war. But between 1864, when he was appointed, and 1869, when the first legal tender case came before the court, Chase changed his mind 100%. And as a part of the majority of the court, uh, the case that came before the court was uh, decided uh, that the greenbacks were not legal tender for any debts issued before the legal tender acts. The question of whether they were legal tender after the acts was left moot. It wasn't decided at that time. But they were definitely not legal tender before, uh, for debts before 1862. And that stands to reason, because a contract that ends up in a debt uh, is, um, should be payable in the, the medium that was current when the contract was drawn. That's only fair, and that's really a first law of contracts. So that's 1869, the greenbacks at least to that extent, are unconstitutional. But that, that decision rankled the Grant administration, which was in power at that time. And Grant appointed two new members to the Supreme Court, which he had every right to do, because one justice had resigned and there was already a vacancy. Well, he appointed two people, two justices, who were very sympathetic to the Greenbacks, and the Attorney General asked, asked the Supreme Court to uh, judge the case again, and it did with two other cases, and came to the conclusion that the Greenbacks were constitutional for all debts, public and private, no matter when they were contracted. Um, well, that, uh, the, the vote was five to four. It, it was strictly party. It was strictly the, the Grant appointees, and Grant and Lincoln appointees to the court, all Republicans, who voted uh, for the legality of the Greenbacks. And it was the previous appointees, including Chase, and uh, a couple of others who were appointed way back. Uh, I won't say they were Democrats, uh, 
but uh, at least they 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 had that label. And, and as a matter of fact, the Democratic uh, philosophy at that time was much more conservative on money, money questions than was the Republican. But uh, I don't want to go into that. Um, the rep uh, as a practical matter, the, um, the Grant administration did not like the decision uh, that uh, made the greenbacks unconstitutional because it was a it sort of slapped them in the face and also um, uh, that is it it, it uh, was sort of a comment uh, negative comment on Republican policy so the the, the decision was overturned and uh, and in eighteen eighty four another decision on the legal tender cases cemented the previous one and said that that greenbacks, that Congress could issue uh, any money it wished uh, because it had sovereignty uh, and uh, that uh, uh, it could issue greenbacks any time uh, that were full legal tender in war or peace. And uh, I was going to read that, that third part of that third decision to show you how um, uh, illogical it was, um, but uh, uh, now what I want to get to next is the the founding of the Federal Reserve in 1913. Now that had nothing to do with illegal tender cases. That had only to do with putting a new institution into place which was prime, supposed to be pri private, almost completely private, which would uh, occasionally get into the market and help uh, needy banks that were solvent but illiquid. And it was supposed only to do that when the occasion arose and the banks requested such credit. So it had, no, but it had no connection to the sovereign power that the court gave Congress over the monetary system. The Fed was only a lender of last resort, so-called, but it never assumed or presumed or um, had that uh, function. There's hardly a time that the Fed ever did any lender of last resorting. It, it was always something else. Well, in, 19, in the 1920s, the something else the Fed did was to stabilize the price level. If you want an example of what the Fed ought to do and can do, uh, you, you must read about how it stabilized the price level between 1922 and 1929. And it did it within a variation of about 1% of price variation, price level variation per year. In fact, the wholesale price index declined and very slightly. And, um, but the thing about that stabilization was that we were supposed to be on a gold standard still. And there, was, there were still elements of the gold standard 
uh, in place, but as someone observed this morning, the gold standard ended in 1913 um, for all operational purposes. Well, it still had some, some uh, uh, aspects so in the 1920s, but, but the Fed Bank of New York was the so sort of the Fed Open Market Committee of the time, and it stabilized the price level. However, Benjamin Strong died in October of 1928, and I'll add on a personal note, that was the year I entered the first grade. And, uh, and I didn't know Benjamin Strong. But he died and his policy went with him. And also the power uh, in the Fed shifted from the New York Fed to the Federal Reserve Board in Washington. And the chief spokesman, even though he wasn't the chairman, for the Fed board was Adolph C. Miller, who was a real Bill's Doctrine advocate, and particularly the dark side of what's called the real Bill's Doctrine, which was anti-speculation. And Miller and others who sympathized with his view started um, a, an anti-speculation crusade uh, on the banking system uh, and uh, through a policy, what they called um, um, not bills only, uh, <laughs> direct pressure. And, and direct pressure meant that, that any bank that applied for a loan from the Fed had to undergo a, an examination that determined whether it had had any dealings or ever had had any dealings in the stock market. It was sort of a House on American Activities Committee on banks to see if they were those dreadful, uh, greedy speculators. Um, well, uh, what that I'm gonna summarize what that did. That caused the great contraction of 1929 to 33, where the banking system just collapsed because uh, the banks that, that had that taint of speculation and, and failed because the Fed wouldn't help them uh, also uh, carried that contagion over into good banks. So the whole banking system uh, collapsed. 9,000 banks went out of existence between 1929 and 1933. Then the Roosevelt administration came in, and, and, and of course, they, they were supposed to do something. Well, they did a lot, and a lot of the things they did weren't very good, but uh, they didn't start at all. Um, but the main thing they did was to abandon the gold standard, to pass a resolution saying that there wouldn't be any more gold dealings, they raised the mint price of gold, but first of all, they called in all the gold to Washington, and fortunately, some people didn't turn their gold in, but nevertheless, the Fed got a lot of it. I, I mean, uh, okay, uh, uh, got enough of it. So, uh, so after that 
after the, the, the Treasury had all the gold, uh, Congress gave the president the right to, to uh, devalue gold, the gold dollar, and raise the price of gold, which the president did uh, by 59%, from $20.67 an ounce to 35. Now all of this, uh, uh, then uh, Congress abrogated all gold clauses in, in contracts. That meant that anybody who had a contract that stipulated he was to get gold no longer could get it because it was going to it was going to be gold at a new higher price, which was of course unforeseen at the time the contract was signed. And on top of that, the price level had fallen so much, uh, sometimes as much as 25 percent between the time the contract was signed and the time it was due. So. Uh, gold clause uh, contract creditors were going to get undeserved enrichment, as they called it. Well, the case came before the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agreed that Congress had the power, absolute power of the monetary system, but in order to say that, they reached back to the legal tender decisions of 1871 and 1884 that were completely invalid, complete logical distortions of the Constitution, and used that to say that, yes, Congress had the, the right to devalue, and, and, uh, and they treat, they, the court treated those decisions as if they were written in the Constitution itself. Um, and, and what they should have done, in, in my opinion, is to re-argue those cases. And they had the precedent for doing so because the case had been re-argued once. From, uh, after 1869, in 1870, it was re-argued and decided the other way, in 1884 the same, and so Congress in 18... 1935 could have said, well, we have to re-argue this case and see if there's something in what the original decision was. And they would have come to a very different conclusion. And I'll leave that to, to you to decide. Uh, uh, you can read my book, which is going to include that. <laughs> and uh, uh, that'll, that'll be that. <laughs> well, Dick, uh, thank you very much. It, I, in listening to you, I, I'm a little bit concerned because the, the politicos have the bankers in the doghouse again, as they did in 29, and, and the balance sheets of banks, especially the risk assets, are shrinking <laughs> at a very rapid rate right now. Uh, with that, Judy, do you want to tell us what uh, we should be doing for our next step, please? <laughs> well. Thanks, Steve. Maybe it's just me, but I think the need for monetary reform is so critical 
that every single candidate for president out there should be talking about it. Now, of course, Ron Paul does talk about it, and I give him great credit. He speaks very knowledgeably and with real commitment. He actually has a proposal for reforming our current monetary system, which is hardly a system, really. It's more just a matter of discretion exercised on an ad hoc basis by a small committee in Washington. But where are the other candidates on this issue? We've heard a few references to hard money or sound money during the televised primary debates. We need to rein in the Fed or fire Bernanke, those kind of comments. That doesn't solve it. Are they talking about a monetary rule or limiting the dual mandate or targeting inflation? And would that be much better than what we have now? What we have now is nuance, which is fine if you can spend all your time listening to CNBC so you can dissect the latest communique from the Federal Open Market Committee or listen to a town hall style session with Bernanke. Not to digress too far, but just to emphasize, there is no monetary system, no mechanism in effect domestically or internationally. There's only the monetary status quo, and that's what needs reforming. But there will be no transition to a new monetary regime, the subject for this panel, until the need for reform is recognized at the highest levels of the US government. How can American voters not consider the failings of monetary policy as a fundamental policy issue? How can they not demand ideas and specific proposals from any prospective president? The world has gone through a credit debacle and financial collapse with devastating consequences for the real economy. The most powerful central bank issuing the most influential currency is located a mile and a half from here it's a US government agency with its chairman, vice chairman, and entire board of governors all appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. The next American president, whoever it is, should be laying out a path to serious monetary reform, not only for this country, but for the world. Because we haven't fixed anything since this last money meltdown. What has really changed since where we were just before the collapse, let's say June 2008. At that time, the total notional amount of outstanding over-the-counter financial derivatives was $684 trillion, about 12 times the world's gross domestic product. Well, that figure dropped some in the immediate aftermath of the crisis, but the latest numbers show that the notional value of outstanding financial derivatives has now climbed back over $600 trillion. And what has changed on monetary policy itself? Alan Greenspan has been faulted, mocked, for having kept interest rates too low for too long. Maybe he did. He's not omniscient. Now, right there, that is why we need monetary reform. Because Fed chairmen, even very, very intelligent Fed chairmen, are not omniscient. Here's the point I want to make about monetary policy, and it relates to inflation. Inflation, as measured by the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, was rather low during those final Greenspan years, 2 to 3%, slightly over 3 in 2006 when his term ended. 
but close enough to what the Fed likes to describe as benign. And so here we are today with high unemployment, broad fear of falling back into recession, one would expect reduced consumer demand under these conditions. One would not expect price pressure to be coming to bear in these tough times. I mean, why should there be any inflation at all? And yet, the latest annualized inflation rate shows 3.53%. Something is really wrong with the calibration of the money supply to the needs of the real economy, to the level of productive activity. There's a purely speculative game being played out in the financial sector with credit default swaps with massive levels of derivatives, two-thirds of them linked to gaming the differential interest rate policies of the Federal Reserve against the European Central Bank, or just betting on currencies. We see from one day to the next the Dow Jones Industrial Average jump 200 points, fall 200 points, back up 200 points. Same for the FTSE or the Nikkei. Responding to this global kabuki theater of frantic meetings among finance ministers and the latest pronouncements from central bankers. The real economy doesn't bounce around like that. It's more like a slow moving barge with seven billion people aboard. But it's being whipsawed by these monetary policy driven events, which almost seem to belong to a different stratum. You think, those guys should be playing with tokens, with casino chips that can only be used to chase paper profits in financial markets. The rest of us just need money that works. We need money that, one, provides a useful medium of exchange. For me, that means on a global basis. I happen to believe in free trade. Two, we need money that functions as a meaningful unit of account. That means across borders and through time. And three, speaking of time, we need money that serves as a store of value, not money that loses 3.53% of its purchasing power in a slow year. Really, should prices be going up over 3.5% in 2011 when 9 out of 10 Americans believe we're still in a recession? This disconnect between monetary policy and the real economy goes to the core of my presentation for this conference. I contend that reliable money is absolutely the key to having a free market economy operate at optimal levels. It's such a critical tool for measuring value, whether you're consumer or producer, investor or entrepreneur, creditor or debtor. Money has to be dependable and accurate because money gives voice to the market by conveying the price signals that allow people to make rational decisions. It's the language of commerce, the communication device that instructs productive economic activity. So, is money too important to be left to the politicians? Does government have too great a conflict of interest in conducting monetary policy and controlling the value of money? It bears repeating, as voters, we should all be very interested in what the presidential candidates have to say or don't have to say about the need for monetary reform. Now, Congressman Paul has made it clear that he doesn't think government can be trusted to control the value of money, the value of the dollar anyway. Perhaps he is right, in which case we may have to forge that alternative path toward private competitive currencies by repealing legal tender laws 
as he has proposed. But call me old-fashioned, I'm not quite ready to give up on government. We do live in nation states. In this one, America, we grant powers, limited powers, thanks to the wisdom of the founders. We grant powers to our government, including the authority to regulate the value of the U.S. money unit. You know, that's how Thomas Jefferson referred to it. His treatise on setting up a common currency for this new country, the United States, is titled Notes on the Establishment of a Money Unit, which he understood to mean an unchanging standard, a measure, along with other official weights and measures. Jefferson proceeded to define the value of the U.S. dollar in terms of a precise weight of silver or gold. Beyond defining what a dollar is, I believe it's the responsibility of the U.S. government, which is constitutionally charged with regulating the money, to ensure that the dollar's value is maintained as a measure, a standard, in terms of one of those original precious metals. I believe we could begin to achieve this on a contemporary basis through the issuance of a treasury instrument linked to gold by offering a dollar-denominated treasury obligation with a gold convertibility option, we could start to comply today with the constitutional obligation to regulate our money in keeping with the precepts of Jefferson. My proposal would give our government the chance, perhaps its last chance, to exercise its money powers responsibly by issuing treasury trust bonds, and that is what I would call this new class of gold convertible debt obligations, America would be signaling not only to her own citizens, but to the global community at large, that we are committed to serious monetary reform, that we recognize the importance of sound money, sound finances, to the proper functioning of a free market economy, to the perpetuation of democratic capitalism itself, and so we are locking our fiscal and monetary future onto that trajectory. I am not dismissing the intellectual validity of competing private currencies or the theories of Friedrich Hayek, particularly his later work on the denationalization of money. But I will take here as my monetary guru, Ludwig von Mises. It was von Mises who provided what still stands for me as the best definition of sound money. He said, quote, the gold standard alone makes the determination of money's purchasing power independent of the ambitions and machinations of governments, of dictators, of political parties, and of pressure groups. The gold standard alone is what the 19th century freedom-loving leaders who championed representative government, civil liberties, and prosperity for all called sound money, end quote. So that's what I want, <laughs> sound money through gold convertibility. And sound finances must be pursued in parallel through a balanced budget amendment. We have to place controls on government that impose strict limits on the powers granted to it. No deficit spending, no fiscal stimulus, and no monetary stimulus through an accommodative Federal Reserve that buys up its own government debt. Gold-linked monetary reform in the United States would open the way for new global arrangements as other nations emulated us on a voluntary basis ultimately bringing about a new monetary system for the world, an updated global gold standard. In presenting the idea for treasury trust bonds, which 
I've been doing in various venues from an international monetary conference in Kazakhstan in May to Robert Mandel's annual Siena gathering in July to the Heritage Stable Dollar Conference last month, the Atlas Panel on Sound Money in New York last week. My proposal for Treasury Trust Bonds has just been published as a feature article in the Central Banking Journal. The reaction it's generating tells me people are looking for something, an initiative to launch the transition to new monetary arrangements. One individual heard the presentation and told me, great idea, but you know, China is going to do it first. So how would Treasury trust bonds actually work? Pretty simple. Holders would have the right to be paid the nominal dollar amount of the bond at maturity or, at their option, receive payment in the form of a fixed amount of gold. For example, imagine today that you could purchase a five-year Treasury obligation that pays no interest, but at the end of five years, you can elect to receive the principal amount of $2,400 or one troy ounce of gold. How much would you be willing to pay for that instrument? Investors who think the dollar price of gold will be higher than 2400 five years from now because they suspect the Fed will create excess dollars in the interim period will be high bidders for these bonds when they are sold at auction. They'll pay a premium. What they are purchasing is a medium-term treasury instrument priced like short-term treasury bills which pay no interest because the rate of return is inherent in the difference between the purchase price and the face amount received at maturity. At the same time, investors in Treasury trust bonds are purchasing a call option on gold. So if the dollar price of gold five years from now is higher than 2400 they can opt to receive an ounce of gold instead. Treasury trust bonds should be seen as a corollary instrument to TIPS bonds, which you can already buy. I'm referring to Treasury inflation-protected securities, which compensate holders for the decline in the purchasing power of the dollar in terms of the CPI. Treasury trust bonds are Treasury inflation-protected securities, which compensate holders for the decline in the purchasing power of the dollar in terms of the price of gold. It's an investment option, like tips, for people who are willing to lend to the government but don't want to incur a dollar loss because of loose monetary policy. Many investors are more concerned about inflation that shows up in asset bubbles than a slight upticks to the CPI. Many would rather uphold dollar purchasing power relative to the universal monetary surrogate gold than an index of domestic consumer goods. And you know, having this corollary instrument to TIPS bonds would provide useful information to the Fed about aggregate investor expectations regarding inflation, whether it's pooling in global commodities or just registering as low-grade consumer price increases. This information function has been an important benefit of TIPS, but the original reason for offering TIPS bonds was to assure purchasers of U.S. government debt that they wouldn't be ripped off by inflation, by dollar debasement. Treasury trust bonds likewise offer this trust but verify option to those who invest in dollar-denominated U.S. financial obligations. Only they can choose to be protected in terms of gold rather than the CPI. Most important, issuing gold-convertible treasury bonds as a transition mechanism provides a way to harness the power of the market to ascertain the appropriate gold value of the dollar. 
the bugaboo for going on a gold standard has always been how do we know what is the right convertibility rate for the dollar so we don't get deflation or inflation. Well, let's allow the market to set the price rather than government planners. Not to jinx it, but in closing, I should mention that the idea of having the U.S. Treasury issue bonds redeemable in gold as a way to move toward a gold standard was put forward 30 years ago by Alan Greenspan. He recommended doing just that in an op-ed published by the Wall Street Journal in 1981, the first year of the Reagan administration. To which I say, this is America. It's never too late. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Judy. Um, so we've uh, had Dick winding us out of gold and Judy taking us back into gold. And as I, uh, I realize today isn't the Sabbath, but now we have Larry who will tell us how we can get from the current monetary realm into the promised land. Larry. Thanks, Steve. Uh, first, I want to mention, uh, for those of you who have the version of my paper in the uh, conference packet, that there are footnotes. They do exist. I'd be happy to email them to you, although they don't appear in the printed version. Um, our late friend Bill Niskanen, um, on the topic of transition, uh, was known for the following uh, remark. I'm not sure who he stole it from, but uh, he said the, uh, the river about a mile from the uh, Niagara Falls may be a little bit calmer than the river about a mile above Niagara Falls, but the transition is a bitch. <laughs> uh, we need to think about whether the transition to a gold standard would similarly be a bitch, and if so, I mean, that would count in our cost-benefit calculus of whether going back to a gold standard uh, or forward to a gold standard uh, is worth it. So we need to consider what's the least bitchy way, is that how I should put it? Uh, the least, the most cost-effective way of returning to a gold standard. Um, so I'm going to just uh, stipulate that we all want to return to the gold standard and ask what's the most effective way to do so? How do we get there from here? There are two transitional paths that have already been mentioned today that suggest themselves. One is to uh, legalize a parallel gold standard. Ron Paul talked about that this morning. Let it grow up alongside the uh, current fiat dollar regime. The more conventional path, uh, as, as Dick Timberlake referred to, as the U.S. followed after the suspension of the gold standard during the Civil War, is to set a date after which the U.S. dollar is to be meaningfully defined as a certain mass of gold, so many grams of gold per dollar or so many dollars per ounce uh, that today would, of course, imply converting the Federal Reserve's liabilities uh, into gold-redeemable claims. Uh, now, we see analogs of these two kinds of transitional paths uh, when we observe how peso-using countries have dollarized. Uh, I, in particular, I have in mind two cases of about 10 years ago in Ecuador uh, between 1998 and 2000, a parallel, unofficial U.S. dollar standard emerged 
as the inflation rate rose, as it went from low double digits to high double digits to triple digits, uh, the private sector dollarized itself. And it was so dollarized that there really wasn't much change when the government finally pulled the plug on the official currency and uh, Ecuador became officially dollarized. By contrast, in El Salvador uh, in 2001, the government chose to permanently lock in the dollar value of the currency, which had been on a dollar exchange rate peg, uh, by outright adopting the U.S. dollar, while inflation was still low and the local currency was still dominant. So when the, to put it in a nutshell, when the official switch to the harder currency came in Ecuador, it was an act of necessity in the midst of a hyperinflation crisis. Uh, in El Salvador, it was an act of foresight to avoid such a crisis. Uh, and I'm going to say I, I hope we take the El Salvadoran path rather than the Ecuadorian path. Uh, by the way, if I seem a little sleepy, it's because I actually had dinner in El Salvador last night in the airport uh, en route from a university in Guatemala back here. Uh, it's a four-hour flight from there to Dulles, so you can do the math. Uh, I'm a little sleep-deprived. Uh, let me talk a little about allowing a parallel gold standard. Uh, Clearing away the legal barriers to a parallel gold standard is fairly straightforward. It can be done without immediately uh, altering existing financial institutions. Ron Paul this morning mentioned his uh, H.R. 1098, the Free Competition and Currency Act of 2011, which represents one way to do that. Uh, it would ensure the enforceability of contracts denominated in units other than fiat dollars by removing legal tender status from Federal Reserve notes and Treasury coins. Secondly, it would remove taxes on gold and silver coins that Federal Reserve notes do not face. Uh, and third, it would remove sections of the U.S. Code that have been used to criminalize the victimless activity of privately minting uh, distinctive pieces of metal intended to circulate as money. And whatever you think of uh, Bernard Van Nothaus's enterprise of uh, trying to compete with the Federal Reserve System, issuing a silver-based currency, I think uh, the injustice of making that activity illegal is pretty uh, patent. Uh, now, if, if these sorts of measures seem unprecedented, uh, you should note that Federal Reserve notes didn't become legal tender until 1933. Uh, bank of England notes are not legal tender today in Scotland or Northern Ireland, where private bank notes, also not legal tender, actually predominate in the uh, currency circulation. Uh, you might also note that in Switzerland, the purchase and sale of gold is not subject to taxes such as value-added taxes or capital gains taxes. Now, I think further uh, legal changes would be necessary to make a parallel gold standard really viable, namely changes to allow citizens who adopt the parallel gold standard to have access to gold-denominated banking services. I mean, paying using physical gold coins is kind of inconvenient. The world evolved well beyond that. Uh, when it was on a gold standard. So banking services like the issue of gold redeemable checking accounts, gold redeemable paper currency notes, uh, would be important. So either existing banking companies would have to be free to operate, uh, sorry, bank holding companies would have to be free to operate separate gold-denominated subsidiaries, right, with their own balance sheets, or else new gold-based institutions would have to be free to open. And the case for doing these things, for leveling the playing field between the fiat dollar and other potential monetary standards, 
rests on the you know, simple fact that consumers are better served by competition than by monopoly. Keeping alternatives to the fiat dollar at a legal disadvantage limits the options of American consumers, uh, makes them worse off in that respect. Now, the option to use something other than the fiat dollar isn't nearly as important uh, when the dollar is experiencing low inflation as it, of course, will be if inflation becomes more pronounced. Uh, so we shouldn't really expect a mass switchover just from the legalization of uh, a parallel gold standard as long as inflation remains low. So in that sense, it's in the Fed's hands how much of a use people make of this option. And there's, a, of course, a strong incumbency advantage to an established monetary standard. There's a network property to a monetary standard. The greater the number of people using a particular monetary standard, the more advantageous it is for you to use it as well. Or to put it another way, you want to get paid in the stuff that other people want to get paid in. Uh, but we do see spontaneous dollarizations in cases where the peso becomes unstable. Right? So like the benefit of using dollars in a peso economy, the benefit of using gold in a dollar economy will increase as the fiat dollar's inflation rate becomes higher and more variable. Uh, and that's when it, if U.S. inflation returns to double digits, uh, U.S. citizens would find it very helpful uh, to have an alternative currency network available uh, already up and running, even if on a, a small scale. That kind of potential competition might, who knows, might even incentivize the Fed to keep inflation low. Uh, let me turn to reestablishing a gold definition for the U.S. dollar. The fact that there is this network property uh, to a monetary standard supports the case for not simply legalizing a parallel gold standard, but also reestablishing a gold definition for the U.S. dollar. Right? If network effects mean that switching over piecemeal in an uncoordinated fashion isn't going to happen until inflation really gets out of hand, uh, there's a strong case for avoiding that kind of transitional crisis uh, by making a coordinated switch over before high inflation takes hold as I said, following the Salvadoran model rather than the Ecuadorian model. Now, when we reconsider the uh, establishment of a gold dollar more than 40 years after the closure of the gold window, we have to pick a new parity. I think it's pretty widely recognized that it would be foolish to try to relink the dollar to gold at $20.67 an ounce, or even at $35 an ounce, or even at $42.22 an ounce. It would be foolish, of course, because the U.S. price level has risen more than five-fold since 1971. The real price of gold has gone up in addition, so 42.22 an ounce, or anything less, implies a massive deflation, a deflation not anticipated in current nominal contracts. Britain's uh, painful deflation after the First World War, when they tried to go back on the old parity despite having massively inflated the price level, you know, s serves as a warning to us. Uh, what happened, the purchasing power of gold at the old parity was much lower in Britain uh, than in the rest of the world, so gold flowed out of Britain, uh, and pound sterling values faced inescapable downward pressure. It was a vicious deflation. I think that point is widely appreciated. Nobody advocates returning to such a low parity, but by similar logic, uh, it would be foolish to declare a new parity of, say, $8,000 an ounce, five times the current price. The result in that case would be a sharp transitional inflation and a very expensive importation, not an exportation like Britain suffered, but an importation of gold from the rest of the world. Right? Gold would rush in to take advantage of the fact that for one ounce of gold you could get $8,000. Uh, 
which buys a lot more at current prices than an ounce of gold buys. And that would go on until the influx of gold raised the U.S. price level to 8000 to the point that $8,000 no longer uh, buys more than one ounce of gold. So we'd like to avoid a, a transitional inflation or deflation, and the way to do that, if you follow the logic of what I'm saying, is to establish a parity something close to the current dollar price of gold. And I say close uh, because there will be some change in the real demand for monetary gold following the stabilization of the gold value of the dollar. But there are two forces at work here. On the one hand, with lower expected inflation, uh, the cost of holding non-interest bearing money will be lower, and so the real demand to hold money in the form of non-interest bearing balances, that is currency or checking accounts that don't pay interest, uh, will rise. On the other hand, with the risk of dollar inflation dramatically reduced, the demand for gold coins to hedge against dollar inflation, right, the demand for Krugerrands and Eagles and bullion, that will fall dramatically, right, the mirror image of the way it's risen in recent years. I think that latter effect is likely to dominate because hedging demand is the main reason why the real price of gold is now higher than it was when the U.S. abandoned the gold standard, the last vestiges of gold redeemability in 1971. Okay, so suppose we think about going back to gold at $1,600 an ounce or something like it. Uh, does the U.S. Treasury own enough gold to do that? Uh, and the answer is yes. At a market price of $1,600 per fine troy ounce, the U.S. government's 261.5 million ounces of gold, assuming it's all there, <laughs> I realize Fort Knox hasn't been audited in a while, uh, those gold holdings are worth $418.4 billion. Is that big enough? Well, look, current required bank reserves are only $83 billion. So it's plenty compared to that. Or look at it another way, $418.4 billion is just about 20% of current M1, uh, uh, the, the sum of currency and checking account balances. 20% right? is a more than healthy reserve ratio by historical standards. So Combined with the likelihood that hedging demand will shrink by more than banks' reserve demand will grow with larger demand for M1 balances, I expect that denationalization and remonetization of the U.S. bullion stock at the current price would al actually allow the U.S. economy to export some excess gold. Uh, there'll be a small transitional windfall for U.S. citizens getting imported goods and services in exchange for the excess gold. So expeditiously establishing a new gold definition for the U.S. dollar requires the following two steps. One, withdraw most of the $1.6 trillion in non-required reserves that banks have accumulated since September 2009 by eliminating interest on reserves and by selling the mortgage-backed securities that the Fed acquired in QE1, uh, plus enough treasuries, to bring the total of bank reserves down to the value of the U.S. government's gold stock, somewhere around $400 billion. Uh, second, redeem Federal Reserve liabilities with the U.S. government's gold at the then current market price. That would put us on a, a gold standard with plenty of reserves. Now, I say plenty of reserves, assuming that 20% is plenty by historical standards uh, of fractional reserve banking systems. But there is, of course, the point of view, which has been mentioned uh, in Ron Paul's talk uh, and in other places today, there is the idea uh, that we should establish 100% reserves uh, behind M1. 
I mentioned $8,000 as a figure a minute ago. $8,000 is about what you get if you divide current M1 by the stock of gold ounces held by the Fed. Some economists who favor 100% reserves uh, for currency and checking accounts have offered this as an approach to finding the new parity, just perform this division, never mind what the world price of gold is. But it's so much above the world price of gold that, as I said, it implies a huge influx of gold for the rest of the world, a large loss of U.S. wealth in exchange for the imported gold, and a sharp transitional inflation. Uh, I think we can do better than that. To put it another way, to establish 100% gold backing for currency and checking accounts would be very expensive. Uh, at $1,600 per ounce, the difference between M1, which is about $2.1 trillion, and the current stock of gold held by the federal government, about $400 billion, as I said, well, you can do the math. That's $1.7 trillion. That's a pretty expensive uh, proposition. American taxpayers would have to buy $1.7 trillion uh, worth of gold. Something else about 100% reserves should be mentioned, which is they make it impossible to have what was historically the most popular sort of currency, namely circulating redeemable paper notes. If you're going to put uh, all money on a warehouse basis, it's impossible to have circulating bearer anonymous currency because the warehouse doesn't know who has it. They can't charge storage fees. And gold warehouses have to fund their operations through storage fees. So it's uh, not clear how you would have uh, circulating uh, warehouse receipts. What about the central bank? Well, because the nation's stock of money becomes endogenous under a gold standard, no monetary policy is needed. Uh, and as I like to do, I quote Alan Greenspan on this when he was on The Daily Show. He said, you didn't need a central bank when we were on the gold standard. All the automatic things occurred because people would buy and sell gold and the market would do what the Fed does now. Okay, not put exactly the best way, but uh, what he's saying is that we didn't need a Federal Reserve in uh, 1913 to manage the stock of money. And of course, the Federal Reserve Act didn't actually conceive of the Fed as a day-by-day -day manager of the money supply. The gold standard was supposed to manage the money supply. If you retain a central bank to manage the money supply, you actually undermine the automatic operation of the gold standard. You damage the credibility of the dollar. You undermine the pre-commitment to the rules of the game because you've established a discretionary actor with the power to void the rules of the game. So it does more harm than good if you understand the logic of pre-commitment, the importance of pre-commitment to uh, sound money. Central banks invariably uh, face political pressures to pursue monetary policies inconsistent with of redemption of gold at a fixed rate. And on the question of a, a, a dual versus single mandate that came up earlier today, the European Central Bank has a single mandate. It has a very strongly worded constitution that makes price stability a single mandate. It hasn't held up. Right? When push came to shove and the European Central Bank was asked to monetize the debts of the uh, Greece and uh, Spain and Portugal and Ireland, uh, it's been caving in, and inflation in Europe is just as high as in the U.S. It's running around 4% year over year. So when a central bank runs a policy inconsistent with maintaining the gold standard, as it will be pressured to do, uh, the historical evidence is that the gold standard gives. By contrast, a system of competing private banks issuing gold redeemable liabilities faces legal and competitive constraints 
And those kind of banks actually have a better track record at maintaining convertibility than central banks do. What we call the classical gold standard, it's, it's sometimes forgotten, uh, function quite well without a central bank in many countries, like the United States, like Canada, like Australia, like New Zealand, like South Africa. Uh, particularly in Canada, which didn't weaken its banking system with ill-advised legal restrictions. Uh, even in the United States, which had severe financial panics, uh, those panics could have been avoided if we had followed the Canadian banking model. Canada didn't have those panics. So I blame those on the bank regulatory system, uh, not on the gold standard. Uh, but even given all that, the, the business cycle wasn't worse under that system than it has been under the Fed's watch. Uh, footnote to a paper uh, George Selgin and Bill Straps and I have uh, in process. Do we need a central bank for some other purposes under a gold standard? Well, we don't need a central bank to issue currency. Private banknotes form the majority of circulating currency before the Federal Reserve Act. Uh, the Fed has some other useful functions that can be returned to private clearinghouse associations as they were before the Federal Reserve Act. Clearing and settlement of payments, enforcement of membership standards for solvency and liquidity, uh, and conceivably uh, lender of last resort operations in the sense of organizing loans of reserves from banks that have enough to banks that are running low uh, in uh, unusual cases. Um, so I think uh, it's a pretty straightforward case. Uh, but let me contrast what I'm saying to, to something the journalist Martin Wolf recently wrote. He said uh, the obvious form of a contemporary gold standard would be a direct link between base money and gold. Base money would be 100% gold-backed. The central bank would then become a currency board in gold with the unit of account defined in terms of a given weight of gold. Well, you can have the definition without having a currency board that is 100% reserve arrangement. Uh, and actually, although central bank notes are base money today, under a gold standard, they're not. Only coined gold and bullion is base money under a gold standard. Notes in circulation are redeemable liabilities of their issuers. They're not actual bank reserves. They're not potential bank reserves. And although a currency board is less likely than a central bank to undermine the gold standard, there isn't any need for it either. Uh, surprisingly, Wolf actually recognizes that it's wasteful to hold 100% reserve in a bank if depositors don't need their money almost all the time, but he doesn't draw the obvious conclusion which is that a currency board in gold is less efficient than fractional reserve banking under the gold standard. Uh, so the banking system uh, would be more robust than he suspects, uh, given the historical evidence I've cited. And we want to return, if we want to return to a gold standard, it should be uh, one that doesn't unnecessarily uh, require expensive gold uh, holdings and uh, doesn't introduce a central bank able to avoid the rules of the game. And of course, even better if we take on the task of reforming our banking system uh, so that it doesn't rely on legal restrictions and doesn't rely on subsidies and guarantees. Thank you.